0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book and print cultures, stamping problems. You
0: are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years through the
1: community. Created by Coral Zillian.
0: The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online my name is Eve Patton and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is Trinity's flagship institute for arts and humanities research. So the hub is home to the very best of our scholarship in history and literature in language, philosophy and religion, education, law, and the creative arts. Uh, and it's also home, the very proud home, to the lecture series, Out of the Ashes. Now in its third year, this is beyond question, an exceptional series that has built on the story of Ireland's national archival tragedy, uh, the destruction of the Public Record Office of Ireland at the Four Courts in Dublin in 1922, to address other stories of archival loss and recovery across the world. We have this groundbreaking lecture series in the hub, thanks to the vision and the generosity of our supporters, Sean and Sarah Reynolds, and I'm very pleased to acknowledge their help. And also thanks to the imagination and indeed the stamina of my colleague from Trinity's Department of History, uh, Dr. Peter Crooks, who's the series coordinator. June 30th in 2022 will mark the centenary of the Four Courts explosion and fire On one afternoon seven centuries of Ireland's collective memories in the record treasury at the public records office were lost and this was one of the great material tragedies of Ireland's civil war. Out of the Ashes has been a very highly developed response to this history and its contemporary reverberations. The series has set this Irish experience into a global context of archival catastrophe across the centuries from the destruction of the ancient library of Alexandria right through to contemporary aspects of cultural loss including the ongoing vulnerability of digital archives. In the course of the lectures we've heard from a range of world-leading experts from many different disciplines and many countries India, Africa, Asia and Europe all represented as they reflect on how societies deal with cultural trauma through reconstruction or commemoration. And I know that several speakers who have been part of this series are joining us this evening, and I want to extend to them a special welcome. Out of the Ashes began in 2018, and that year it explored concepts and the ethics of collections and collecting. In 2019, the focus shifted to archival loss through destruction and atrocity. And you can uh, follow or, or retrieve these lectures uh, through the links that are on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. Now in 2020, we've been looking at the theme of recovery, which brings in, of course, the difficult questions of cultural repatriation and restitution. And this brings me to this evening's talk. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Hub And to introduce our guest speaker this evening. Professor David Anderson is Professor of African History in the Global History and Culture Centre at the University of Warwick in the UK. David, as I think many of you know, has published very widely on the history and politics of Eastern Africa, uh, including, among many books, the the recently co-edited Politics and Violence in Eastern Africa, From 2015. He's researching several new projects for publication and as I know we're joined by many friends from Kenya this evening. I'll mention in particular his forthcoming volume of essays on the Mau Mau counterinsurgency in the 1950s which draws on colonial documents that were released since 2012. David is also the editor of the African Studies series at Cambridge University Press and he's the founding editor of the journal of East African Studies. This evening, David, is going to take us back to April 2011, when the then British Foreign Secretary, William Hague, informed the British Parliament that a collection of some 25,000 historical files illegally held by his department for over 50 years were going to be transferred to the British National Archives at Kew. And these were records that Britain had secretly removed from its colonies. And David's lecture is going to take up this story of uh, the so-called migrated archive and its implications. After David has spoken, we're going to hear from Daniel Geary, who is the Mark Piggott Associate Professor in American history here at Trinity. Uh, But Dan is also an expert, as well as being an expert on 20th century United States history, also an expert on the development of ideas about race and ethnicity and on civil rights and the rise of white nationalism. So after David, Daniel has responded, we then want to hear from you. We'll have time for Q&A uh, or comments, and you can put your Q&A into the panel at the bottom of your Zoom screen or if you're listening on our Facebook live stream, you'll see uh, the space for questions there. Greetings also, I should say to anybody listening through our US central, uh, Irish central platform. You can also, of course, as always tweet using the handle at tlrhub and the hashtag hubmatters. So now to address the question, whose history, the migrated archive and Britain's colonial past, I will welcome Professor David Anderson, David.
2: Thank you very much indeed for that introduction. It's a great pleasure to be part of this series, um, which I think has had some actually magnificent lectures already. So I've got to be up to my game today. Well, the of the Ashes lecture series focuses our attention on acts of cultural loss, destruction and recovery. And my lecture this evening has a lot to say about destruction and loss, but as yet recovery remains only an aspiration in this story albeit one that is very hotly contested. And I hope to explain why that is so. I will tell you the tale of Britain's migrated archive, a vast collection now comprising more than 25,000 historical files, originating from 37 of Britain's former colonies. These documents were covertly removed from these colonies and brought back to London as empire came to an end between the late 1940s the 1960s. In this act, Britain was effectively censoring the records it was prepared to allow the successor nationalist governments to have. This was a political act, intentional, deliberate, and self-consciously carried out in secret. It was an act born of imperial power, of colonial authority, and of cultural domination. But it was also an act of cultural loss and of destruction. an effort to edit history, have the past presented in a sanitized and positive manner that would be beneficial to Britain and to Britain's interests in the world. This was an act then that completely subjugated the rights of colonial peoples and sought to censor their history. When brought back to Britain, This empire archive was then hidden away, its existence repeatedly denied for over half a century. It finally came to light in the midst of a legal case in 2011 in which the British government was held to account for the abuse of human rights in colonial Kenya during the 1950s. So let's begin with that act of disclosure. Can I have the next slide, please? Now, after a prolonged campaign for justice that spanned more than a decade, representatives of Kenya's Mau Mau Veterans Association finally got their day in court in April, 2011, when a hearing opened in London Supreme Court on the Strand. The allegation to be heard was that Britain had been responsible for the torture of suspects in Kenya during the Mau Mau emergency between 1952 and 1960. Amongst those expected to give evidence in this hearing were historians, myself among them, who would act as expert witnesses, using historical evidence from colonial archives to provide proof of British government action and intent. In the decade over which the Myanmar veterans and their lawyers from the human rights specialist firm Lee Day struggled to bring the case before the courts, the British government sought to deflect and delay that process obstruction and deceit were the weapons frequently deployed in these skirmishes. Suspecting that the FCO, the foreign Commonwealth office, had access to documents from Kenya's history that were relevant to these charges, the lawyers made frequent requests for release of relevant files. In doing so, they were informed by myself and other historians who had seen traces in the archives that these documents had been removed at the time of independence. Finally, in December 2010, as the first hearing in London approached the following year, I submitted a witness statement to the judge in the case, Mr Justice McComb, in which I provided evidence from the files of the Kenya National Archive in Nairobi and corroborated by snippets found in records at the UK National Archive in Kew, to show that documents had indeed been removed from Nairobi in 63 and brought secretly to London. Mr. Justice McComb then ordered the FCO either to produce these documents or to provide legal evidence of their destruction. Should they fail to do either, he declared he would hold them in contempt of court and award the case to the prosecution. Facing this threat at the FCO, Mr. Edward Inglet, a junior staff officer, then manning the Kenya desk, now frantically tried to reinitiate the searches he'd already gone through many times before over the previous two years. This time, when faced with legal threat, the records manager at a place called Hanslope Park, which is a GCHQ storage facility near Milton Keynes in the UK, finally admitted they held the documents. This news came through early in January, 2011, and I cannot explain really how remarkable this seemed. After nine years of constant denial that these documents were held by the government, suddenly they'd been found. Now, were it only one or two files, you might have forgiven them for misplacing them, but you don't lose 25,000 files down the back of the sofa. Somebody somewhere all along knew exactly where these files were, but had simply chosen not to say so. Before the end of January 2011, the FCO informed Lee Day that there was in fact 1,500 Kenyan files related to the 1950s that might be relevant to MAMO. Justice McComb ordered these files to be made available to the prosecution and arrangements were now made to allow myself and the other historians, Carol Elkins and Hugh Bennett to see all of this material. Between January and the commencement of the hearing in early April, We hardly worked through this vast array of new evidence, and I employed seven of my own graduate students over that period, working with these files 12 hours a day. It was very hard work, but very rewarding, because we found a great deal of evidence that would show that not only had there been tortures in Kenya, but those tortures had been sanctioned by the British government, not just by junior officers, but at cabinet level. In 1956. Now, in the rush to release these documents to us for the case, some clumsy mistakes were made by government. One of those mistakes was that in a bundle of documents sent to us was included a floor plan of the storage facility at Hanslope Park. When we studied that floor plan, we noticed that it clearly showed that alongside the Kenyan material were other documents not relating to Kenya but in fact relating to other parts of Britain's empire. This mistaken document that didn't need to be sent to us at all was the document that revealed there were holdings for not one colony but 36 others as well and it was that mistake that led directly to William Hague issuing a parliamentary statement in the second week of April 2011 announcing what became known as the Hounslope Disclosure, admitting that they had in fact, not just Kenyan documents, but documents relating to all of Britain's colonial empire. At the time they thought there might be some 8,000 files. At my latest count, more than 25,000 files have in fact now been transferred to the National Archives in queue. In the month following the disclosure, William Hague decided that the documents should be released to the TNA immediately after the trial and he was persuaded that they should be redacted first, so the government had to put some resources behind a very speedy redaction for this group of documents. Transference to the National Archive at Kew took place over 2012 and 2013 and these documents are all there now and can be reviewed by anyone who wishes to see them and they're under the designation FCO. 141 and they become known as the migrated archives series. Can I have the next slide please? Now the origins of the case that led to this revelation stemmed from Kenya in the 50s. It was to do with uh, Mau Mau supporters who'd been illegally detained without trial, not people who had been convicted of terrorist actions. So the image shown on this slide is of three of the five plaintiffs in the case, not by then elderly Kenyans, who in the 1950s had been arrested on suspicion of Mau Mau sympathies, had never been tried, but were then held for periods of between four and eight years in British detention camps. Detention camps in effect are prisons by another name. There was lots of documents in the Kenya National Archive relating to this historical experience, of course. But as we looked through those documents in the 1980s and the 1990s, when I was first doing research on Mamo's history in Kenya, it was very clear from the documentary evidence in Nairobi that files had been removed. Historians generally work systematically through file categories, going in sequences of numbers. When you do that, it's very easy to spot gaps. And when those gaps emerge, patterns also sometimes emerge. And what was clear in the Kenyan case to anyone who worked on these files in the 1980s was that significant papers to do with accusations of atrocity and accusations of torture had been removed from the files. So not only did we know that material had been taken, we knew that that material related to acts of abuse or at least accusations of abuse. We also knew that there had been some attempt to move these documents out of Kenya and back to the UK. We knew that because among the archive traces in Nairobi were files about that removal, papers that described how files were selected, what was done with them, how they were packaged up, and even giving details of the date and method of their transportation to the UK. When I wrote to Dustin McComb, even had the registration number of the van that moved the documents from Gatwick to the storage facility in Hayes in London. So we were able from those documents to get a great deal of information, but we also had in the case the witness testimonies from people like these shown in the slide, survivors of these atrocities who gave oral histories of their experience. And the historians in the case were involved really in matching up these two kinds of evidence to make a stronger case witness testimony and documentary evidence. So without the documentary evidence that had been removed from Kenya, the case was considerably weakened. Once we had that removed evidence returned to us, the case strengthened. And in fact, in 2011, the British government during the hearing decided to admit to the charge of tortures and to acknowledge that there had in fact been state complicity in those acts. And that led eventually in 2013 to an out-of-court settlement in this case, in which more than 5,000 Kenyans were paid compensation by the British government for the tortures that had taken place. Next slide, please. Now, if we go back to think about how those documents were removed from Kenya and indeed from other colonies and ask why they're removed, we can reveal more of that history and more of the context around this process. It shouldn't really surprise us, I think, that archives should be a matter of contestation at the end of empire. Of course, when you think about it logically, the British government were likely to wish to protect their interests. And that would involve protecting access to information and knowledge. They wanted to shape how incoming nationalist governments might think and behave. And in many cases, they wished to maintain friendships and close relationships with those governments. There was therefore a need to try and manage the records that were passed on to those incoming governments. This first became an issue when the British decided to decolonize India in the 1940s. And in fact, from accounts of of India's decolonization And there are several references to the smoke from the bonfires of burning documents wafting across Delhi in the final days of British rule. And there's also considerable evidence of the great contestation that went on between India and Pakistan over the fact that each claimed ownership of certain sets of documents. So the issue of removal of documents and the destruction of documents was an issue In India's decolonization before it became a colonial issue. Now, India, of course, was administered by the India office, not the colonial office. So, a different administrative strand. But as far as we can work out, the processes that went on in India were broadly similar. But we don't have the details, they've not survived. At least, they've not come to light so far. We do, however, have the details of what the colonial office did. And this became known by a generic term which is Operation Legacy. Operation Legacy was the process of retrieving documents from colonies back to London. That process involved both the destruction of documents, deciding that things should not be passed on to the incoming government and should be destroyed, but also the retention of documents, a decision that things should be kept because they might be useful to Britain. Operation Legacy was governed by principles, but those principles evolved over time. So what began in Ceylon in 1947, 48, gradually transformed through other colonial decolonizations in Ghana, in Kenya, in Malaya, in Malaysia, in Malaya and in Nigeria and so on as time went on. But basically there were four principles That were used to define what documents should be retained by the British and what might be destroyed and what could be given back to the incoming governments. Firstly, they should not be given papers which firstly might embarrass the British government or its allies. Secondly, they should not be given documents that might embarrass members of the police, the military forces or public servants or other categories, such as police informers. Thirdly, they should not be given papers which might compromise sources of intelligent information. And fourthly, they should not be given papers which might be used unethically by ministers in the successor government. And that last one, of course, is open to very broad definition. Now the result of this is that what happened in each colony was highly variable. And in some, such as Malaya, there was massive destruction of documents, whereas in others, much less so. So the experience of different colonies varied. Kenya suffered particularly because of the proximity of the Mau Mau emergency and the stark and difficult politics of those years. So, in Kenya's case, there was massive and widespread destruction. And there was also very heavy management of records. So, even as Kenya was moving towards independence from 1959 onwards, who could see records within the government was very strictly controlled. By then, Africans were working within government house and within government offices. And so, some precautions were taken to ensure that. Non British, non white workers could not see certain documents. So, this was nationally defined, but also racially defined. In Kenya's case, documents were marked with a W, a large W stamped on them on the front of the file to indicate watch documents, documents that no African should be allowed to see. And elaborate arrangements were made for the care and safekeeping of such documents. So Operation Legacy was about returning documents to Britain, yes, but it was also about destruction of documents and about the regulation and control of access to documents at the time. Next slide, please. Now, while great efforts were made to keep these developments secret from colonial peoples, amongst British officials, they were frequently discussed. So when historians have looked in the archives to try and find evidence of this process, it's surprisingly there in lots of different registers. And I've picked just one example here on this slide to illustrate the way in which this process was talked about. There were many deceptions and disguises that were used to prevent local politicians and their staff knowing about Operation Legacy. But British officials themselves were often quite effusive in the way they discussed it. This example was found by one of my students who was working on the papers in preparation for the legal case. And I remember her glee and delight when she got got hold of this quote. It comes from uh, Wainwright, who was Minister of State for Constitutional Affairs in Kenya in November, 62, so just prior to independence. And he's writing to a colleague here and he's trying to justify why it is that they are taking so much effort to destroy documents and why he is at that very month, parceling up documents to be sent back to London, seven large packing crates full of those 1,500 files I described earlier. And in this note, Wainwright says to his colleague, we're doing this partly, and I quote, just in case a future nationalist government wish to erase all records of the colonial past and rewrite history to accord with their point of view there'll be ample records of the efforts we made to turn the country into a civilized state. In other words, British officials such as Wainwright were very aware of the writing of history in the future about what they had done. And at least part of this operation of destruction and of retention was about controlling how that history might be represented. Next slide, please. Of course, Kenyans after 1963, when it when the country became independent, very quickly came to understand that their records had been tampered with. Um, Civil servants coming into government offices quickly realized things were missing. As early as 1967, Kenya made its first request for the return of missing documents, listing files they knew were missing. And by then, there's quite a lot of evidence suggests the Kenyans knew those files were in London and wanted them back. In 67, the British denied they had any such files and told the Kenyans they couldn't help. In 1971, the Kenyans managed to get a UK parliamentarian to ask a question in the house. And again, he was stonewalled. In 74, a second request was made. And this time the British government decided to admit they did indeed have some files they'd taken with them but these were of, and I quote, a non contentious nature and had been retained by the British government for its own purposes. By the late 1970s, United Nations bodies had begun to pronounce on migrated archives and had uh, passed resolutions that supported Kenya's attempts to have the documents returned. So Kenya invoked these in trying to negotiate its position with the British government and was then again ignored. In 1981, the Kenyans sent a delegation to London in search of the migrated archive. And as a young graduate student, then doing my history PhD at the University of Cambridge, I met that delegation in the reading room of the National Archive at Kew. They were searching for the migrated archives and had meetings that day also with staff at the National Archive. They were systematically lied to and misled by politicians, civil servants, and by staff, regrettably, at the National Archive. In the 1980s, other colonies also began to follow Kenya's example. The Bahamas, Botswana, Swaziland, Tanzania, all made petitions to the British for the return of lost documents. And by the early 1980s, it was widely accepted by a number of of former colonies, now Commonwealth countries, that their records have been taken by the British and that they were unlikely to get them back. Moving forward to 2003, Kenya's quest for restitution took a major step, step change at that point as a change in government in Kenya brought in a change in legislation. And for the first time since 1963, Mau Mau, the Mau Mau movement was taken off the national banned list this meant MAMA veterans associations and other such groups could now operate legally, whereas before they'd not been allowed to. And this change in 2003 was what gave the legal case its real impetus. From then onwards, Kenyan government officials could support the case and they could bring together the quest for the migrated archive along with the claims for MAMA compensations. And from 2003 onwards, the two things are increasingly seen as part of the same problem. In 2010, this again was given a further fillip when the president of Kenya gave his support to the efforts to get documents back and to have MAMA reparations cases heard in London. So I think what this shows is that the Kenyans have not ignored these documents. Over a period of 50 years, they've been striving in various ways to get them back. Next slide, please. The other side of that coin, of course, is is what the British were doing over this time. And it's very interesting to note that it's at the time, around the time that the operational legacy is being implemented, that Britain's Public Records Act is passed in 1958. However, that act, which still is in force and still governs public records in the UK, although it is, as I shall explain later now, I think hopelessly out of date, and not really fit for purpose, that act is still in force. At the time it was made, there is no mention in it at all of colonial documents. And it's clear from the way it's drafted, there was no conception that any colonial documents should fall under the Public Records Act. Now, in Kenya, documents were being destroyed by 1960-62. And document destruction always, of course, horrifies historians, but it's much more common and commonplace than we often like to admit. Only a small percentage of Britain's um, archives actually make it, uh, records actually make it into the archives in any given year. It's well under 10% of the total figure. uh, So we shouldn't be surprised by destruction. So no one in 1958 to 1963 would have thought the destruction of, of records in Kenya was anything unusual, but they might have been concerned about the lack of categorization and organization in that process. However, when the Kenyan documents came to London at the end of 1962, no one really did anything with them. They were sent instead to a Foreign Office depository in Hayes, where they languished for the next 30 years. At Hayes, documents could be consulted by diplomats or by other interested parties who contacted diplomats. And in fact, there's a fair bit of evidence to show that quite a few historians did manage to see some elements of this collection. And in fact, I was first alerted to the fact that these documents might still exist by some colleagues of mine who were working on the history of Southern Africa had contacted the diplomat about records on Lesotho and had actually been directed to these records and allowed to see several of the files. So although this was a secret, and to some extent a well-kept secret, information about it had leaked out into the public domain to some extent. In 1994, the documents were moved from the Hayes Depository to Hanslope Park, where they were to be found in 2011. And again, while Hans Park, they were fairly regularly consulted. Between 1995 and 1997, government officials made investigations into this migrated archive to discuss whether or not it should be retained or destroyed. And at that point, because of cost-cutting and because of the difficulty of storing records of such vast quantity, there were some people within the ministry who thought these records should now be destroyed. A decision was taken in 97 not to do that and to retain them, but there was some dispute about whether those records really did belong to Britain or not. That discussion of their status came up again in 2007, partly provoked by Freedom of Information requests between 2005 and 2007 that were made in connection with the emerging Kenyan case for the Mau veterans. So when these FOI requests came in, the Foreign Office weren't quite sure what to do with them. Now this raises quite an interesting issue because Freedom of information only became legislation in the UK in 2005. So these requests were among the earliest made under the Act. Now the Act is supposed to function by the listing of documents that can then be checked. The Foreign Office's position on the documents at Hanselope Park was that they couldn't be checked because they weren't listed. And this effectively exercised a loophole, as it were, in FOI that allowed them to say they didn't have the documents. They knew they had some documents, but without a list, they couldn't tell you what they were. Then in 2011, after the declaration, the Hanselope Declaration and Disclosure, the government did an internal report known as the Carey report on what had happened with the archive. And around that time, the FCO also admitted that besides the Hanslop disclosure materials of 25,000 files, that Hanslop Park actually held another 1.2 million files that belonged to the Foreign Office that had not yet been released to the public. It turned out that around 60 to 70% of these files were from Hong Kong and its decolonization, but that the rest referred to a variety of incidents going back to the early 20th century, things that simply had been decided not to put into the public domain. Now, those 1.2 million files um, should have been recorded with the Lord Chancellor's Committee as part of the Public Records Act, but they were not. So they were never officially admitted to at all and therefore were illegally held. This situation appeared to get even worse in 2013 when in response to the issues around Operation Legacy and the publicity given to these matters, The Cabinet Office initiated an inquiry into whether the Foreign Office held other collections and also whether other government departments might have similar collections. It turned out that six other government departments did indeed have what became called legacy collections. So we now know that this problem is not just confined to the Foreign Office. Next slide, please. So coming back to our Kenyan files and the migrated archive more generally, what should happen? Should these files be repatriated? Who do the migrated archive actually belong to? Is it the UK or the former colonies? Since the 1970s, the UK government has managed to advise itself in both directions on this. At one point, they thought the files belonged to the colonies, since 2011, they've argued that the files belong to the UK. Does it matter? Well, of course it matters because many of these colonies would now like their files back. Also, the Association of Commonwealth Archivists and Record Managers, an organization called ARCOM, in 2017 declared that in its opinion, these archives must belong to the originating territories and that they should be repatriated. And in fact, that judgment conforms with all international uh, positions on migrated archives. But that's not the vision the UK government has opted to take. In fact, the UK government, in putting the documents into the public domain, has in fact redacted them under UK law. And has also had to acknowledge in that process that there are some records that are still missing. There are some countries' files that are not there they've acknowledged there are some things that have been lost. What should be done to repatriate? Well, it could easily be done in my opinion by simply offering the records or a a facsimile copy of the records to each country concerned. This would not be a difficult thing to do, but so far the British government has elected not to do that and gives very little cooperation or help to those countries who've asked to have the documents returned. Next slide, please. So my final comments, what implications do we take from this study? What do we we glean from this story? Well, if we think, if we step back and think about how records are managed in the UK generally and what archives are and supposed to be, two or three things are very striking. Firstly, the current UK government and its two predecessor governments have prided themselves in being an international leader in what they call open government. And the management of big data. The situation of the migrated archives is therefore a huge embarrassment and one that could easily, I think, be solved. The story of the migrated archive is the antithesis of open government. It's the manipulation of records for vested interest. Secondly, the Freedom of Information Act has not worked terribly well in relation to the migrated archive because of the problem of listing. And I think there's a need to look at that and consider whether departments have done what they are supposed to have done with their records with regard to the Freedom of Information Act. It's very obvious they haven't and maybe they should be made to do so. There are also issues though arising for Q and the National Archives. Now, it's been many years now since the archivists at Q were better known as records managers rather than archivists. And the distinction between those two terms has, has I think become quite important. Um, are the staff at Q to be seen as archivists or are they to be seen as records managers? And does it matter? I think it does. And I think if they're seen as archivists, then their responsibilities in this matter are clear. If they're seen simply as records managers, then maybe they simply have to do what the government tells them to do. I think there's a need here for a little bit of of activism. Do we have appropriate legislation in the UK for dealing with such things? Well, the Public Records Act of 1958 hardly does the job at all and really needs to be totally revised. The last two or three governments have been reluctant to do this. There's no sign of any appetite for it, but my goodness, it needs to be done. The statutory powers that used to lie with the Keep Republic records to more or less compel departments to comply with orders is still there, but appears no longer to be used. And I wonder why. One writer on this matter has talked about the democratic deficit with regard to these records. That there is in fact, no accountability and no transparency in the management of these records. And that no one actually seems to have to report to anybody publicly about what is going on. That is partly reflected in the fact that in the process of records management in the UK, there is actually no role at all for historians. Historians were written out of the Public Records Act in 1958, quite self-consciously and deliberately, and have not had any leading role at all in this process since. So lastly, Whose history is this? Well, of course, it's the history of the colonial peoples who these files refer to, but that is also Britain's history. It's also part of our heritage and it should be acknowledged on both parts. I want to see these records returned to Kenya and to other colonies from where they were taken, where they can be used by local historians as well as by historians who work here in the UK. And I want them to be open both sets of researchers, because they do belong in some ways to both. Thank you very much.
3: I would, uh, my name is uh, Dan Geary. I teach uh, American history here at uh, Trinity. And I guess the first thing I wanna do is just uh, say what a wonderful talk that was. How fascinating it was! This is not something that, personally, you know, it's a story that, that uh, I myself know a great deal about. There'll be others in the audience who will want to ask more specifically uh, about it, and as they should, indeed. And, and I see already people are asking questions drawing my parallels to to Ireland, um, and I could see many parallels, of course, to to Nor- Northern Ireland as well, and to the to the Troubles, and um, you know the. Uh, you know the information that's still not widely known about things like uh, the bloody Sunday killings and, and the like. Uh, but where I want to come at it was actually sort of where you ended, uh, which is to, to talk about uh, this as Britain's history as well as because it can easily become uh, and it indeed seems to be set up uh, in the legal proceedings as either victims uh, uh, of uh, British you know, imperialism in the past or national governments um, you know, pushing Britain to open these archives to themselves, to reclaim this history uh, for themselves. But I am curious about how to make this Britain's history as well in the public consciousness. And it is it's quite striking to me. I lived uh, for three years teaching at the University of Nani it was quite striking to me, the just utter lack of um, knowledge really uh, uh, grappling with the uh, British uh, imperialism among, Uh, My students, I I was teaching once about uh, slavery in the United States. In the 18th century, and uh, you know, the students kept saying, Oh, well, you know, America is such a racist country, and I can't believe they had slavery. And I, I sort of lost it with them after a little bit. I said, Well, what you people you have Latinas for as well, and don't you understand that in the 18th century this was a British colony? You know, this is the history of Britain and the history of empire. But something happens, and it's exactly at this moment, I suppose, when the records are taken, you know, where an uh, imperial history becomes a um, a national history and now we've got two different national histories and uh you know within britain itself there comes to be this weird distinction of sort of here and there uh and of course the same thing you know i mean is, is true and i'm sure in many other places as well in the u.s if you try to get anyone to talk about the you know the philippines war or anything like that or never mind the things that have been done by the by the cia and the like in the world there, there's tremendous ignorance of that as well in the US. But I wonder in particular um, about this moment because obviously this has been ongoing for, for a long time as you, as you talked about it, but we're in a moment now where uh, precisely because uh, there are so many, um, you know. M- Descendants of migrants from former colonies in Britain, uh, you know, who are now really leading the, the Black Lives Matter there, who are leading the push to you know, decolonize the, the curricula there, who are, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, we see statues uh, being being toppled, uh, in other cases, demands that um, you know, buildings be renamed and the like. Um, obviously, Trinity is in in some ways a part of this history as well. And this is something we're starting to grapple with here. But I wonder if there is a moment here where this story, which really seems, it, it, as you've told it in the past, to have been one between, you know, uh, British policymakers focused really on uh, concerns about public relations and foreign relations with their Former colonies, as well as you know, actual uh, victims in um, former colonies themselves, as well as government officials. I wonder if there's a moment here now where where this could open up really to uh, a broader discussion about uh, you know Britain's history and a real reckoning with that in a way that. Uh, you know, I don't think has, has been done uh, in any real way that, that silence has been um, you know, such a, it's almost like a perfect metaphor, right? Take the records, lock them away, no one in Britain knows that they're there. It's like a, a, a perfect you know, uh, 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 analogy or a sick joke for how Britain has dealt with its colonial past. So anyway, that's where I'm coming at. I'm sure there'll be plenty of other questions, but that's, if you want to respond, um, uh, and then we can open it up, obviously, to, to many other questions.
2: I think your question's really on the money, Dan, in the sense that that this was a very protracted effort to bury bad news, to take away the things that would reflect poorly on the UK's relationship with countries that, remember, former colonies became Commonwealth countries. They have a close relationship to Britain. They're not alien, they're not separate, they're connected. And it's that inability to see the importance of those connections that staggers me in the way this has been treated historically by British governments. And I think we in Britain, the British government does have a, a secretive tendency. It's inclined to look towards these kind of solutions rather than opening up. But to come to a more specific point, are we at a moment when this should be discussed? Of course we are. And we were at that moment back in 2011. And we did succeed at the time in getting some discussion of what this implied for the curriculum and how we taught imperial history, what we do about it, what we know about it. But that space was very quickly closed down by government responses. They really didn't want it to go in that direction. It's now opened up in that direction again. And again, I think we're trying to do our best with it. But in Britain at the moment, we have a government who are really quite willing to manipulate history to, as I said earlier to to the quote from Mr. Wainwright, to rewrite history to accord with their point of view. You just look at the UK citizenship test for citizens coming into the UK. The historical aspects of that citizenship test have been significantly rewritten in the last five years so as to shift how history of Britain is perceived. And that's been done very self-consciously and very deliberately. So history in Britain at the moment is becoming more deeply contested than ever. And the points you raise are going to come up again and again. This case is very relevant to Black Lives Matter. It's very relevant to decolonization. It's very relevant to the restitution of museum artifacts. All of these things are are connected and need to be recognized as such in the way we treat them.
0: David, thank you, Dan. Uh, th- thank you. Let's, let's see if we get time to, to come back to these points, but we have so many questions coming in, I would like to get to some of them. Um, I'm going to start with Lopaka O'Connor, who I think has asked a very interesting question in two parts, David. First, on what basis was the determination made that some files should be migrated, others destroyed? And you did address that a little bit in your talk but you might want to comment more. The second part of our question I think is very interesting, which is, were the methods that were applied to these archives by the British duplicated by other decolonizing powers, France, Belgium, uh, she mentions the US as well. Uh, is Is this a wider practice that goes across the imperial system?
2: Well, very good questions, thank you. On the first one, The decisions between migration and destruction are really quite tricky to work out. So it appears to vary greatly from colony to colony. So let me just answer in relation to Kenya so we can get some clarity and then that might give us a sense of how this works. So in the Kenyan case, they were very concerned about legal redress. They knew that people in Kenya might well try and get compensation for legal wrongs done to them during the emergency regulations. They were aware of that and they explicitly discussed it in these files. And one of the criteria in Kenya for bringing a file back to the UK would be that it might be useful in a future court case. So files that could demonstrate that Britain had shown due diligence, had investigated this, and had found X, Y, or Z about it previously, all of that was seen as highly significant. And that's why so many of the Kenyan files are about atrocity accusations. Now, if you look at the other colonies involved in the migrated archive, material like that just isn't there, except where there were similar circumstances. So in the Cyprus case, There are some similar files to that, but in the other colonies, none. So context was everything in determining what kind of decisions were made. But broadly speaking, it's hard to answer your question because we don't actually know what was destroyed. We have some indications. We have we have some clues, but we don't know for sure. In the Kenning case, again, for example, we do know but all the local detention camp records were burned. All of them. So we've, we've never found any of them. So we do know certain categories went completely, but we cannot be sure, uncomfortably sure about everything. Your second question um, on the, on, on, on the um, sorry, remind me of the second
0: question again, again, Professor Patton. The second question was the duplication of these, these practices by other uh, decolonizing powers? That's a fascinating question to ask.
2: Um, and and at, at the moment, um, we we know from the French side that there was some destruction of documents, but we don't know its details. And we do not know about retention. So we don't know if things are returned. But I would be really surprised if it hadn't been because the logic of the situation suggests that any incumbent government might try to do this. So I'd be very surprised if there isn't a similar story in France. But whether in France, documents that were taken back in the 60s would have survived so long, I really doubt. Because one of the most remarkable things about this British story is that these records actually survived at all. It's astonishing that they weren't all burned in the 1980s or 1990s. It's astonishing they got all the way to here. So I do think it's likely that similar things happened in the French case, the Portuguese, because of the the way in which Portuguese empire ended, probably not. Uh, So I think, again, it would vary from case to case.
0: Uh, We've lots of questions coming in on Ireland, which I'm gonna get to, and also on the, the unsatisfactory public records Act of 58, which a number of people are addressing. So I'm going to come on to that, but but briefly, David, if you wouldn't mind a question from Isabella Jackson uh, that I think might relate to some of the things you've just been saying. Um, and it's about the shifts in policy of the British government in terms of their attitudes around 2011. Uh, she asks about the different, the, the, the attitudes of the different political parties in power and how much the shift from uh, Labour to a Conservative government change the attitude specifically? Or is this a, a procedure that goes beneath the radar of political party allegiances?
2: I think my, my most immediate answer to that is to say that um, for both Labour and Conservative parties in Britain, there was very little difference in the way that they reacted over the years to this problem. However, um, the Labour government of Blair and then Brown was more willing to negotiate and discuss with the Kenyans who sought to bring legal redress than was the Conservative government. Mm. Uh, And had the Labour Party not been voted out of power, I think we might well have got an out-of-court settlement. For the Kenyan case without the hearing and therefore we'd never have found out about the migrated archive. So ironically, a more liberal approach to one problem might have foreclosed the other. Uh, So I don't think you can happily say that this has been a party political issue. I think that it's much more a case that the Foreign Office itself and its legal advisors, have been reluctant to act on this, regardless of which party is in power.
0: And it's very interesting that there aren't what we might hope for, fundamental ideological differences in play. Um, I believe so. Yeah, exactly. I want to call on uh, a question from one of our uh, um, audience members, Katrina Crowe, who is the former director of our own national archives in Ireland. And Katrina, I, I think we've been able to unmute you um, so you go ahead and speak when you're ready.
1: Thanks Eve, uh, can you hear me? We can. Okay, I want to thank Professor Anderson for a, a very beautifully concise and enlightening uh, paper on an extraordinary story. It strikes me that it would be a fantastic addition to Steve McQueen's marvelous films that are showing at the moment on BBC, BBC One about the experience of, of uh, people of color in the United Kingdom. Just to say two things, very quickly, the, the problem, as you, I'm sure you know, with the 1958 Public Records Act, is that the decision to destroy records does not rest with the archives. It yeah. rests with the creating departments. That yeah. is a fatal flaw. Uh, Ireland is a small little country, but we have a very good National Archives Act of 1986 that puts that responsibility squarely in the hands of the archives as an independent agency and it would tend also to include historians as people who would be able to help evaluate the historical value of what records are there. In terms of the Irish situation because of course before India and Ceylon and Malaya and and Kenya Ireland um, decoupled itself from the British Empire in 1922 or part of Ireland did and in that situation quite a large number of records were taken away to London yeah. um there was very little interest in any of that for a long time because of the fact that we ourselves managed to blow up our archives in 1922 talk about a known goal uh, the fact that peter crooks who was mentioned by eve earlier is now creating this marvelous beyond 2022 project is allowing for digi- digital reuniting of some of those records back together again so that we can see them story there was that there was a Fenian conspiracy in Ireland in the 1860s. They were the first records that they took. We got them back in 1944. So here's an example of, if you like, a certain amount of diplomatic back and forth. They weren't, I mean, they were the 1860s. We get them in the 1940s. The problem was they were in atrocious condition because they'd been stored in a damp basement and they were filled with mold and all kinds of stuff like that. Now, I absolutely share your conviction that these records uh, that you have so brilliantly excavated, and that story is extraordinary, a collaboration between historians, archivists, human rights lawyers, and victims to be able to to reveal the existence of these extraordinary and really important records. They should go back to where they came from. I've always thought the Irish material should too. I'm now thinking, well, if it's going to be a terrible fuss, just give us copies. of verifying that we have everything and that is the problem you have with the migrated archive too. How sure can you be that everything that you have seen, uh, I know you mentioned redacted records etc and others that you have now determined to be missing, You, you don't think there's anything left in Kenya, they have control of their own archives there and they can see but could there be anything still with the FCO that they haven't told you about and that is part of the problem there.
2: Yes, I I could not agree more. Um, And we we do know that the FCO um, does have categories of records, the contents of which we're not fully aware. And they cannot even at present give us full details of what they do hold themselves as they claim that some things are still not listed. So that ambiguity certainly exists. And there are also interesting categories of missing files. So for example, there's nothing from British Guiana, there's nothing from Palestine. And it does look as if those records at some point were removed and were put somewhere else. There was also a category of records within the migrated archive that was transferred to another depository for reasons that are not clear at one point, some 200 boxes. And those, they have now admitted also, are lost. And those contain, we think, the private papers of Kenya's first president, Jomo Kenyatta, that were confiscated from him when he was arrested. So yes, we're not sure we have the whole picture, for sure. We also are not certain that um, every country that is on this list wants archives back. There are one or two who do not because they think that the records might cause more trouble than they are worth. So this is a more ambiguous set of questions than it first appears. In the Kenyan case, the Kenyan National Archivist has petitioned to have the papers returned. He has acknowledged that he would accept copies if copies can be made, but he is reluctant to incur the Kenyan purse to do so. He thinks Britain should pay for it, because in his terms, they stole the records in the first place. And you can't help but think that's a pretty fair argument. So there are differences between different countries about what they want to happen, but I really can't see any barrier to copies being made, digital copies, and these being given as a gift to each of the colonies concerned. It would generate enormous goodwill. It would overcome the animosity and difficulties that have arisen in recent years over this. It would go a long way to repairing and healing some of the wounds this has caused. And I really cannot understand why the British government doesn't simply do this as it would be a relatively simple thing to accomplish. And it does raise a suspicion in my mind that there may be other things that we don't yet know about that they're worried about should they set a precedent by doing what I've just described. So I, I
1: think- The Marbles are hanging about in the background as a horrible spectre, oh, all everybody. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a, a great delight to talk to you. Thank you. Well,
0: thank you. Thank you very much, Katrina, for that. And uh, you've touched on now issues, which a number of people are mentioning in the questions. Catherine O'Donnell is one of many people who've asked the question of, well, you know, does, does digitization not, uh, resolve the, or solve these problems to a certain extent, and I think you've begun to talk about that, but it raises the, the accompanying question of the fact that, you know, we're dealing with files which are hard copy files, and you showed us an illustration of what merely one shelf of files. This is a huge volume of material in hard copy in physical form, which obviously had to be physically taken out of uh, its original place in the process or in the, 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 uh, in the years of decolonization. Uh, and one question that's come in from David Horgan on Facebook uh, is, I suppose, partly related to this, he asks, are retired former colonial administrators open to speaking about these issues? David, are there any retired colonial administrators who might have said to you, we know what happened, we know about the physical processes of carting this stuff away?
2: Yes. And of course, um, I think the person who asked the question probably suspected the answer is that, yes, some people did talk about this. And I was first, I first interviewed um, former colonial officers in the late 1980s who gave me an indication of what had happened. But there's also involvement of retired colonial officials in other ways. Um, at Hanslope Park, um, when documents are going to go from Hanslope to the National Archive, they have first to be redacted. And that redaction is actually carried out by retired colonial officers who sit there and go through the files, because they're judged to be people who know what needs redacting and what doesn't. So colonial former colonial officers are quite heavily involved in this process and uh, do have a story to tell. Of course, most of them, not talk about it at all, as they would think is proper. They weren't supposed to, they keep quiet. But yes, a few have talked. And there are in fact one or two um, memoirs which mention um, things that happened. And I in fact, I live in the wonderful city of Oxford and attending a garden party a few years ago, I was regaled by a neighbor of mine who it turned out had been a secretary in government house in Nairobi in the early 1960s, and she gaily told us a story about spending several weeks that summer in the garden beside a brazier stuffing files into the fire. Um, so these things are, are, are there in, they're in circulation as it were, as stories and tales. And of course also in, in Nairobi, regularly senior Kenyans, both lawyers and politicians would tell me stories of them remembering, seeing documents being destroyed in 61, 62. So yes, uh, it's hard to keep a secret.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And and a very good question, David. That's David Horgan coming in there on on our Facebook stream. So thank you for that. Um, We've got lots of questions about National Archives. And I'm watching a bit of a discussion start in the Q&A. Niels Bender and Georgina Brewis beginning to debate this. And Niels is asking, he says, thanks for the great talk. Should we be rethinking the entire nature of national archives? The problem I think he's suggesting is not so much with the archives, but with the idea that these are national possessions and and that this is really at the root of the problem, that it's dangerous to see documents, he puts it as somehow autochthonous. Um, I wonder if you you could talk about that, David, in the context of, of the... Ongoing problems people are touching on to do with the management of public records in the UK system. It's a
2: very, very pertinent point, because when discussing this issue in East Africa two years ago, with archivists from both Kenya and Tanzania, um, a point was made to me, uh, very forcibly, that national archives were state institutions and had to obey governments. And the fact that that might make them autochthonous in their actions was perfectly okay. And, uh, and I'm saying these are African archivists telling me this. In other words, what they're saying is look, to some extent we understand entirely what the British government is doing. They're looking after their interests and what they see as their records. We might do the same is what they were saying. So I think the question's a good one in the sense that it, 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 it puts its finger on the point that the autonomous nature of national archives is itself part of the problem here, not the solution. And hence the question of ownership becomes so vexed and so contested. Um, the, we're not helped either by international regulation on this. So the United Nations conventions on archives and migrated archives, and all of the statements made by various Commonwealth and international bodies that deal with records management all assume national sovereignty over documents. So while we may well recognize this can be a barrier, it's a very substantial issue in the field that is quite hard to get
0: I'm going to to turn that back in one second to to Ireland, um, because uh, there are so many questions and comments coming in in about that context, but I just want to acknowledge we've also had a a comment from uh, Jane Maxwell uh, from Trinity Library, who I think points out with the wisdom of experience that, uh, you know, saying, well, you just send digital copies uh, is far from simple. And yeah. the processes of digitization, the process of capturing metadata meta- and so on is, is far from straightforward in this respect. If, a I huge say,
2: if I can say for sure that that's absolutely spot on, because in my discussions again with the Kenyan archivists, they're willing to accept having digital copies, but they don't want them. Because for them in their reading room and the technologies they have, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. And making yeah. those accessible to their readers is going to be quite a challenge. And they may well have to make printed copies to do that. So, yes, digital is not an easy answer. It's an answer, but not an easy answer.
0: And, and a reminder, and thank you Jane for that, that we're on a, a longer timeline here, I suppose, than, you know, it's not a simple question of let's do this tomorrow. This is a, an evolutionary process, I suppose. Uh, but if we're talking about evolution, let's let's think back along the timeline to the earlier part of this century, and and various questions that have come in around the question of what happened to documents uh, in Ireland, to Irish documents or to British documents about Ireland that were either burned or hidden or, again, migrated, to use that term. Um, I don't know, uh, David, if I can put this question to you, not so much about what do you know about the history of of this process, but perhaps to use the question another way, does this ever come up in discussions of Kenya in particular, that there is a prehistory that goes back to 1922 um, that that needs to be acknowledged?
2: No, it it does come up, and it it has come up a lot in discussions, especially with um, some of the... Archivists who were involved, I I mentioned that visit to Kenya in the early 1980s by a delegation from Kenya. The people involved in that were very aware at that time that there had been previous examples of records being moved and they cited at that time the Irish case. So this was openly discussed in 1980-1981. Uh, when I first was in the National Archive myself in Kenya in 1980, and I first discussed this issue with the archivist then, who was a different gentleman than is now in the Post, of course, again, he was aware of the Harris example. He was aware that there were presidents there. So people in the archives world, um, it, it, it's quite a small world, and it's quite an activist's world. Um, lots of adversarial arguments going on all the time. They're very aware of the importance of these Cases that set precedents and set up structures that are still with us now. So I think the Irish case is quite important. And I think it it illustrates the generic character of this problem. It's it's not just limited to one moment in time or to one place. It's much more widespread and, and much more pervasive than that.
0: I, I, I lots of people did touch on that in various ways, and I, I'm going to just say David Flood and and Martin Thomas. Thank you for among many people bringing in the question of the, of the Irish hinterland to this, because I think there's obviously more to be said about that. I'm just going to finish by putting one question to you, David, if I may. That's come in, and you can answer as briefly as you as you like, from Brian McCormack, um, who who asks about the the processes of civil servants, government ministers, the staff at Kew themselves uh, deliberately lying with regard to the files. Uh, he asks about criminal proceedings. Is Does this amount in your view to a crime?
2: Well, what a, a good question to end with. Um, my understanding is that in the early 1980s when the Kenyan delegation came that senior staff at Kew were reminded of their responsibilities as civil servants and were told what to say. I do not know more than that, um, but that is what I have been told. Um, So I'm not sure whether that amounts to grounds for criminal proceedings in the sense that it's not clear whether those people um, were under any form of coercion or threat. In doing that, in taking that line, but I do know that other staff at Q who were not made aware of what was going on certainly believe that they were misled, at the very least, by other colleagues who did know what was going on. And if you read the internal government report on what happened, the Carey report from 2011, it's very clear that all the way through this story, certain staff knew exactly what the situation was, whereas other staff did not, or were at least partially in the dark. So the sense that there are some people who who had a responsibility for this, as the story unfolded, is unquestionably there. Whether those persons should be liable to prosecution, I, I don't think so because I think the problem lies at a higher order of decision-making. It lies with the governments themselves and the way that they're directing staff. I wouldn't want to see junior staff being prosecuted over this, but I would want to see ministers and senior civil servants who made such decisions being held to account. They're the people that matter, not the poor guys in the reading room trying to deal with daily matters.
0: Well, thank you very much, David, for that answer. I'm, I'm really full of regret that we have to draw this to a close. It's been absolutely fascinating, but absolutely shocking in equal measure to hear about uh, this story. Uh, and I think it's a reminder to us all of why we have archival historians and why they must be allowed to speak to government, to legislation, to policymakers. And David, the image of your seven PhD students working round the clock with you to uncover uh, the the archives that you managed to get hold of will stay with me for a very long time. Uh, So I, on behalf of everyone who's who's uh, obviously listened with great interest, uh, I want to salute David for a really penetrating and comprehensive talk. And also to thank Dan as always for a beautifully informed and incisive response. All credit to everyone in the audience because we've had some terrific questions and and a real global response with people listening in from all over the world. So do uh, join us again for the next lecture in the Out of the Ashes series. That's going to be on Monday the 25th of January uh, in to, uh, 2021. Professor Corinne Wegener from the Smithsonian post-conflict recovery uh, from the Smithsonian is going to talk on post-conflict recovery, the Mosul Museum Project Zero. You can uh, follow up on the details for that, they'll be on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. Um, I can also, at this point, announce with uh, some excitement that next year, May 2021, we'll see the series finale of Out of the Ashes, when we'll be marking the centenary of the fire at the Customs House in Dublin with a research showcase and a a special panel on Irish history, Out of the Ashes. And that's going to be organised in collaboration with several government departments uh, and the Beyond 2022 project. Uh, which you heard about earlier from Katrina Crowe, and which is of course led by Peter Crooks. There'll be more on that in due course. Uh, As always, this evening uh, would not be possible uh, without Peter Crooks and all the work he is doing in the background. It certainly would not have been possible, uh, David, without your wonderful uh, and incisive lecture. I want to send our thanks again in closing to our series sponsors Sean and Sarah Reynolds and thanks too to the Hub team Francesco Rafferty and Aoife King your work in in putting this together is much appreciated and finally to everyone who has joined us this evening thank you very much for your time do stay well and I wish you all a very good night the Hub is a community
1: manuscript book and print cultures stamping provenance languages, towards the history of the time of the year library as well as being heard the hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Carl changes. The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. And the rise of feminism. Lines, Here's to the next 10 years. 10